Hello and welcome to the audio commentary track for The Horrible Sexy Vampire and who possibly thought you'd ever be hearing an audio commentary track for The Horrible Sexy Vampire. My name is David Flint, I'm the editor of The Reprobate which you can find online at reprobatepress.com and with me is... I'm Adrian Smith and I run moviesandmania.com and obviously one of us is horrible, the other one is sexy and we're both vampires, so yes. you can decide which one's which. That was a joke I was going to expect, David. So, <laughs> El Vampiro de la Autopista. Autopista? Pista. So I'm, so I'm assured. Okay. And Autopista, in fact. Is, is The translation is the vampire of the highway, uh, or the motorway, possibly. If, um, hmm. and, the um, vampire of the autobahn, I suppose, given that it's set in Germany. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. So, this film, as we shall explain later on, is inspired by a true story. The it star is. of the film, Mr. Yeah, Valdemar Wolfhart. I mean, when we say inspired by a true story, let's we'll not get too carried away. No. Nothing that happens in this film resembles the true story, apart from perhaps one or two little bits that we'll talk about later on. But basically, there wasn't a real-life Count Dracula haunting the German highways, just in case you were concerned. But there was a kind of vampire. A kind of vampire, yes. But what we should say here, uh, straight away, is Adela Toller is on screen. Mm. Quite often known as Ada Toller. Ada Toller, who was in fact the star's real-life wife, Valdemar Wolfhart. Mm. And she'd been at as an actor long before he was. Um, she'd been working since the late 1950s. She was in Jess Franco's first film in a very small part. Um, later on worked with him again in some of his more outrageous films of the 70s like Love Camp and Voodoo Passion. And yeah, as we can see on screen at the moment she's clearly not adverse to taking her clothes off which is possibly the she, reason why she worked with Jess Franco so much. She's not shy, it's got to be said. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, um, and in a way, the film is, is setting out its stall straight away. Gratuitous exactly, nudity before the opening credits. That's exactly what I was going to say, David. Yeah, I mean, there is um, the film's quite infamous for having nudity in it, although perhaps not as much as people have said over the years, which is something else we're going to touch upon, I think, later on. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. There are a few scenes, but not quite as gratuitous as some people have made out. I think if you compare it to films that don't, necessarily have a reputation for being overly sexy, made certainly by the mid-70s, it's, it's quite tame. Yeah, well, I think for 1969 it wasn't tame, that's, no. uh, that's a point. Now here's an interesting, the first death um, it seems to recall one of those um, attacks that you get in Thing Without a Face, doesn't it, by an invisible it does. Uh, alien it brain. Sets- yeah, it sets the film up to be something that, in the end, it isn't, because they don't really run with this whole theme of the invisible vampire. They don't. It fizzles out almost immediately. It's an odd inclusion, isn't it? Um, yeah, and you think, no matter which title you saw this film under, the clue as to what the killer is is right there. Indeed. You know, it's a vampire. You know, when we all know what a vampire looks like. I don't think there's any mystery. But most vampires aren't invisible. No, but... What I mean is, it's like I don't know why there would be this attempt to make it mysterious when you know, we all know exactly what to expect. 
And here we go with the splendidly lurid opening titles. Yeah, these are quite these are quite uh, of their time, aren't they? Yeah, as is the music, very Hammer-esque. We've had this kind of interesting little subtle wailing music earlier, but now it's full on it's full on horror. Yeah, that's a, that was a nice opening theme, wasn't it? With with female vocal uh, crooning, cooing in the background. Yeah, um, a little a little bit like we was popular in the genre of that time, I think, that, that kind of... And a lot of Gialli at the time as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, female I mean. vocals. So uh, we'll talk about the composer perhaps uh, a, a bit later on. But We what... should point out that Arthur Davidson, whose name popped up... As... Yeah, let's talk about the director. <laughs> yes, his, his name was not Arthur Davidson. Jose Luis Madrid, um, who we could probably say is a kind of pioneer of Spanish horror in that he was there at the beginning but he's not he's not one of the leading lights by any stretch of the imagination uh, he's, a, he's what's called a workmanlike or journeyman director perhaps isn't he yeah he would just go where the money was you know with whatever was popular at the time and probably whatever he was being hired for yeah because he did all genres but what we should point out has just been on screen which is also interesting given that the film is called The Horrible Sexy Vampire is a rather odd neck wound Mm. that the victim has there, which is kind of a round, uh, well, oval neck, not not the usual bite marks, which... Uh, it's a proper wound, isn't it? Yeah, which I, I watched Malenka, uh, Fangs of the Living Dead, just last night, and, of course, they talked about proper fang wounds, which is mm. traditional in, in vampire cinema and even in Spanish vampire, but not in this one, which is... Um, it's an interesting film because odd. it's... this. I think this film plays with both the tradition of vampires. Obviously, you've got them referencing Bram Stoker and Dracula right here, straight away. Yeah, but but also it twisted a little bit. You know, it's it's both trying to be gothic and trying to be modern. It wants to be a little bit of everything, I think. I just like the way that uh, the, the the coroner immediately says, "From the results of my autopsy, I think the murderer is not a human." He's straight in there with that deduction, and he's straight in there with the idea that it's a vampire, even though we said um, the wound doesn't look like a traditional vampire. But he's got Bram Stoker, Dracula there, so he's, he's obviously a fan. He's obviously yeah, worked it all out. So um, we have we have two interesting actors here: uh, Lewis and Dooney. As the policeman. He's the policeman, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. He's been yeah. around constantly since the 1950s, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah, I mean, lots, I think lots this lots is going to be... Yeah, this will be a repeated phrase that we do with a lot of the cast of this film. You know, they've been around for a long time. They've done a lot of work. They are solid workmanlike actors who, you know, safe pairs of hands, you might call them. Yeah, I mean, he'd done, he'd done westerns, you know, Satana, Sabata, Django. He'd done spy movies. He worked with Paul Nashi throughout the oh, 70s. He was in Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf. The Werewolf, and, werewolf the and the Yeti. I've got noted down here. The Devils yeah. possess quite a few. Exorcismo. Yeah, and also in films like The Lorelei's Grasp and Enzo Castellari's House by the Lake. So, you know, as with a lot of these people, they would float across European cinema. It wasn't just in Spanish cinema. Yeah, and, that, uh, that was quite late in the day, wasn't it? The, mm. the house by, well, late 70s, rather. Yeah. And what about this guy, Anastasio Campoy? Campoy? That's a good name, isn't it? He's the coroner. Yeah. He also had a pretty extensive career as yeah, well, didn't he? well over 30 years, did a lot of work in television, as, you know, which is the great sign of a, a reliable actor when they just do loads and loads of TV because they're the kind of people who get hired again and then again because they do the job well. 
Um, he also worked with uh, Jose Luis Madrid oh, on was, a couple on, of other films. What he was in the crimes of Doctor, and I'm not sure the pronunciation. Pet, pet, petio. petio. Uh, yeah, Doctor Petio. On that? Yeah, which was uh, 1973, mm. and um, kind of has a bit of a feel of a giallo, but um, yeah. isn't quite a giallo. I mean, we'll probably mention we'll, that. We'll come to that during, a little later uh, as well. Our, our discussion of uh, Mr. Madrid's uh, filmography. Um, but as you said, solid supporting actors and a lot of work, a lot of work for uh, different genres and on TV. Um, I love the way that they also in this this in this scene as well that he manages the, the coroner who's obviously worked all this out has, uh, has, has deduced that there is every a murders occur every twenty eight years as well since eighteen eighty six. Yeah, it's one, it's one of those classic horror themes, isn't it? The, the one that comes back every so often. 28 years is <laughs> it's a long time between murders. Well, yeah. But interestingly, the real-life that inspired this when, you know, was something that actually went back years long before it got the kind of notoriety that it had. Dracula, Doctor. Poppycock's not the right track. So we should talk a little bit more about uh, Jose Luis Madrid. Who, as we said, you know, directed everything—you know, westerns, comedies, um, melodramas, action movies. Um, supposedly made a few crimmies in Germany. Yeah, it's claimed. That's, that's you know. not. That's not. Um, we're not sure about that. No, I mean, it's it's said that he made these films under a pseudonym. I can't necessarily see why he would do that, but it's entirely possible. I think the most interesting film, though, is the one that he made uh, in London uh, with Paul Nashie, wasn't it? Seven mm. Murders for Scotland Yard, um, which is a Jack the Ripper type uh, movie in '71, which is, I think, the year after, about a year after this. Yes, I mean, he was on a bit of a run of true crime films at this point, I guess, with this film, the Jack the Ripper film, and the Doctor Petio film. Doctor Petio, of course, was a famous serial killer of in France during the Second World War, you know, who would prey on, prey on Jews by pretending to give them safe passage and then would just kill them and steal their possessions. Yeah, though Petio is actually set in, uh, in June, isn't it? So. It's the interesting thing about a lot, a lot of these films, as we know with Seven Murders for Scotland Yard, it plays very fast and loose with the facts of the Jack the Ripper case. Well, yeah, because it's all in Soho, and we see Paul Nashy jumping in and out of um, Soho venues, where <laughs> clearly one minute he's in uh, Great Windmill Street, and the next minute he's obviously back in Spain when he enters the tavern, because the, the decor and the look is completely Spanish. Which is very true with this film as well, of course. Well, kind of fun. I like that. I don't know. It's what yeah. makes a lot of these... This is... Let's let's just um, say, this. this is not... A masterpiece, this film. It's just no. trash entertainment. I mean, I'm, I, I think we can safely say that nobody is really going to be buying this because it's their favourite film of all time and they think it's a work of undiscovered genius. It's a fun film and that's... That's why people are buying it. They're, they're yeah. like Euro trash cinema and you know, yeah. they're not going to be expecting, as you say, some kind of masterpiece from the horrible sexy vampire. And, and nor should it be, really. It, you know, it can just be worthwhile as a piece of throwaway fluff. 
Yeah, and our, our commentary track here is just hopefully to um, entertain someone with a few more facts and help them enjoy the movie a bit more um, if they want to listen to us prattling on. Prattling on indeed, yes. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that a lot of the what we might call Euro-Gothic of the cinema was actually had contemporary settings, but they're playing with the Gothic themes, they're playing with vampires, they're playing with you know, werewolves, with the, with the classic characters of the gothic horror era, if we want to look at that as being Hammer films, which obviously were a huge inspiration for European filmmakers throughout the 1960s, certainly, and well, well into was, the 70s. It wasn't long after this that Hammer kind of ran themselves into an issue of, of what do they do with Dracula, wasn't it, and bringing it to contemporary yeah. times. I mean, I think like this, was, this was Hammer's problem, that essentially they overdid Dracula because, you know, they made something like three Dracula films in 10 years and then another four in four years. So they were just you know, pumping these things out, plus other vampire movies, plus other people like Jess Franco also making Dracula films, Dan Curtis making Dracula films, Al Adamson making Dracula films. It really was overkill. The, Jap the Japanese making Lake of Dracula. Mm. Uh, I think they'd already started making uh, vampire films in the Philippines in the 60s as well. So, yeah, the, the whole the whole uh, sub-genre uh, of vampire movies was, was getting pretty, pretty... Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is at its peak washed. period, I think. I mean, if you look about 1969, 1970, it seems to be when the vampire film in general and the Dracula film in particular was just being pumped out. You know, Hammer alone made release two in that year. Or you'd have like Count Yorga, and then the, the, mm. the, uh, the, uh, as soon as the box office was okay, straight into a, a sequel, wasn't it? No, no messing about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, uh, although they didn't really have that much influence at the time, and we, we'll perhaps talk about it uh, in, in, in considering erotic horror, Jean Rallin's vampire films were beginning mm. to get a wider showing in the States yeah. um, under different titles. Um, by about 71. Yeah, you were having the, the first English dubs of those appearing, weren't you? Yeah. But Spanish horror, interestingly, didn't really take off until the end of the 1960s, at, when I said that this was a pioneering film, or that Mr. Madrid was a pioneering director. It's simply because it's one of the first, not because... Well, yeah, Spanish... There'd been others, obviously, Spanish, Franco. Spanish, had, Spanish horror... Uh, there was a very early entry um, in 1944, which was the Tower of the, the, the Seven uh, Hunchbacks, but that's more of a mystery. Mm. Um, and then a, a huge long gap, as you say, until the early 60s with, with Jess Franco's awful Dr. Orloff, yeah. probably a, a, a benchmark. Um, and and, then and even then, he was, he was like a, a voice in the wilderness for quite a while, wasn't he? Well, yeah, and they're often... French co-productions, because mm. uh, as as also we, we will mention that the problems of Spanish censorship meant that a lot of films couldn't be made in Spain and be horror during the 60s. Although there were a few, I mean, it's worth noting, just, just while we're going through um, the 60s, um, the American producer, Sidney Pink, came up with Pyro in 1964, which is like an erotic thriller, but then turns into a horror movie at the end. Yeah. And he carried on and came back to Spain to make The Sweet Sound of Death, which is quite uh, an arty film, actually. Uh, didn't receive a wide distribution because it was in black and white. But, mm. I mean, quite a sombre, um, um, 
not a commercial movie, but you know, at the same time, Franco was carrying on and on, wasn't he? Expanding I, I his, think, his career and moving into German productions. I think um, that's the interesting thing that when when we try and talk about periods of cinema in Europe around this time, it's it's often hard because there are Spanish filmmakers working for French and German production companies. There are French, German, American producers who are filming in Spain because so because of locations, because of mm. budget. Yeah. So saying what is and isn't is quite often, you know, just do we put it down to where the production company was based, who the director was? It's, it's never an easy thing. No, absolutely not. And um, and, I, and, this, and this, certainly the late 60s and well through the 70s was the era of huge international co-productions across Europe. So you quite wouldn't be unusual to see French, German, Italian and Spanish companies credited. And then, and then Liechtenstein, just so they can get tax <laughs> and mm. deal as well. I think that was the truth for uh, Count Dracula from Franco. But I mean, just going back to Spanish horror, um, it's probably worth mentioning The Cauldron of Blood, the, the 1967 movie that um, mm. was was essentially, I think, kick-started from, by the Americans, but was a Spanish movie directed by Santos Alce. Salsa, El Culsa, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but that stars Boris Karloff, which is possibly the only good thing about it. It's a pretty tawdry production. But that didn't get shown until 1970, so clearly wasn't much of an influence on kickstarting. Mm. And it was definitely Paul Nashi, wasn't it? With, um, yeah, his, Nashi. His werewolf films that really got got Spain on the horror map. I think Nashi and, and his um, Hombre Lobo movies, which... Interestingly, within the context of this film, of course, his leading character was um, Waldemar Daninsky. Although he's Polish, uh, the, the but, character. But it's an it's a interesting coincidence, it nevertheless. Is. It's worth noting. So and then, obviously, well, then, I mean, the thing that um, the, the movie that maybe also kicked, really kicked start Spanish horror is the one I mentioned before, Melenka, Fangs of the Living Dead. Mm by um, Armando de Osorio, yeah. who apparently famously had a chat with Paul Nashi and said, oh, there's no there's no way Spain can make horror films because Hammer's already got it all nailed down. And then about a year later, mm. he went into production and uh, and I think, had, I think that film had a reasonable international success. It um, did. It had, a, it had a kind of one of those big indie US releases where it was you know, played drive-ins for years, years often as part years. of triple bills. I mean, you know, Fangs of the Living Dead, Curse of the Living Dead, and something else of the Living Dead. Unlike, uh, no, and again, my pronunciation might not be perfect, but that's Narcisco Ibanez Cerrador, um, who really, really put Spain on the map with La Reden mm. Residencia, yeah. which is most famously known as the house that screamed or, 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 or the, the boarding school. Now, that one really is a class arty horror film that was it a is. huge hit in Spain in 69 um, and it has wonderful production values. I mean, another interesting one around that time, obviously, although not really a horror film, but it has that, it has that connection in, in a strange way, is The Spirit of the Beehive, of course, which oh, yeah, yeah. was you know, a, a great classic film that played with with horror traditions and the idea of horror, it's, it's clearly not a horror film by any stretch of the imagination, but it really just uses plays the Frankenstein. With, yeah, yeah, plays with that kind of horror motif. nostalgia. 
I mean, D'Osorio obviously moved on to do the Blind Dead films, which were hugely influential and popular. Well, I mean, absolutely. Once, once, once the early 70s had kick-started, um, Spanish horror really, really was sold around the world, wasn't it? Often in, in these versions, like this film, which were, were unclosed with nudity, which wasn't allowed in, in Spain. Yes, I mean, we should point out that if you saw this film in Spain at the time, it would be probably a bit less horrible, definitely a bit less sexy. Yeah. Because, you know, in, under General Franco, there was still, even though things had relaxed to allow this kind of thing to at least be made, there was still quite a lot of censorship, quite a lot of suspicion of decadent Western ideas. You know, famously, even even as Spain was being sold as a fantastic Holiday tourist resort, yeah. you know, Many people points. could still be arrested for just wearing jeans or clothing that's too revealing. Well, I think this is this is something that um, people who aren't of a certain age and weren't aware that Spain really was in the grip of a dictator until the, the mid seventies, mm. um, and that's why there is such a marked contrast between, say, as an example, Italian horror, where erotica had um, been used since the early sixties and was grow. I mean, straight away with Renato Pulcelli's uh, uh, productions like Playgirls and Vampire. Uh, the vampire and the ballerina, that sort of thing, mm. straight away. But Spain couldn't go down that road because they weren't allowed to because they were in the grip of this tyrannical General Franco's repressive, old-fashioned mm. family values mm. uh, regime. Much, of course, as the, uh, as the character who we just saw on screen was in the grip of Count Vinegar. Um, ah, Vinegar. The unfortunately pronounced <laughs> Vinegar. I mean, it's, it's technically accurate, I guess. But it's just an unfortunate pronunciation. Maybe vinegar, or it would have still sounded like vinegar. Let's well, be this fair. is the kind of thing that, with the unfortunate dubbing um, that is in these movies, it can it can just cause a bit of hilarity, can't it? Um, rather than rather than instilling the terror. I mean, dubbing in these films, and we should point out that Spanish films around this time were all shot without sound. So every version you see of this, whichever language it's in, is dubbed. That's right, and some of the actors might have been uh, just. Just mouthing the words on set, as they yeah. did in Italian movies as well. Absolutely. I mean, you can imagine, for instance, that um, Voldemar did not speak Spanish. Perhaps he did, but... But there we've seen both of the people that we thought were the heroes of the film killed off, which is a bit a bit of a surprise. You know, it's a real twist of the movie, because they're really set up to be well, they, the Van Helsing figures. Well, they do seem to be protagonists, don't they? And then all of a sudden they were removed from the... Uh, from the... And, but, and as, this... as has been removed was the uh, the whole invisibility thing, because... Well, it does come back later. Then we get a new inspector here. Yeah, Barta Barry. Yeah, who's um, been in, 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 in lots and lots. Yes, I mean, again, you know, to repeat ourselves, another actor who'd been around since the 1950s, um, Hungarian actor... He worked with Jess Franco. Um, he was he worked with Paul Nashi. He was in Horror Express, um, Strange Love of the Vampires, which is a wonderful, much underrated film. Monster Dog with Alice Cooper. Ah, oh, that's a, that's a wonderful fun. I mean, if, if, if there was an example of a, a trash fun movie, so that's what's one of them. But, but a much later than this. I mean, it's like yeah, it's fifteen 18, years later. Eighteen eighty-four or something. Yeah, or was it even later than that? I don't know. I don't know. But didn't he work with Armando de Sorio as well? The Sea Serpent? One of the most cheesy, wonderful monsters ever committed to film. Um, 
just as bad as that recti- rectilicus. Well, Sydney Pink you say you say cheesy and awful as some of us might say adorable yeah. and beloved. Oh, absolutely. Like the giant you know, I love, yeah, I mean, um, you know, as 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 we just noted, we we're, we're here to uh, hopefully help people enjoy the movie. We're not saying we're with the massive fans of it or everybody's productions. It is that strange thing as well that when you get it's a bit off the off the point, but when you get a cheesy monster in a film. People focus too much on that and they forget the rest of the movie. I, I watched the Giant Claw again recently when it came out on Blu-ray. And once you take out the monster, it's actually a pretty good, solid science fiction movie. It's just the monster's so overwhelmingly trashy. It's as big as a battleship. Mm. I think they say that about 30 times. <laughs> Um, we could argue that there's a little bit of padding here in this footage of Stuttgart Airport. You know, not sure we need to see the plane taxiing slowly all the way. Oh, but they often did that because it was a, it was a kind of uh, advertising um, in, in the days before you, you saw huge amounts of obvious um, product, product placement. placement yeah. um, you know, airlines was a classic thing in European mm. movies. It always showed the planes landing and taking off just so they could get a deal with in this oh, case, no. also, also, of course, you know, it is, it is still exotic a little bit at this time. Air travel still a bit fancy. Yeah. But I'm still not sure we needed to see the buses pulling people. <laughs> but here's Voldemar, Voldemar Wolfhardt. The, uh, the one, the The only. blonde star of this movie, who, who apparently initiated it. Um, he, was the, he was the one that got it into production. Yeah, based on a real-life crime case, as we said earlier, that he was the prime suspect in for, for some time. It's a fascinating and, and long and complex story. Basically, in 1964, an American hitchhiker called Mary Ann Peterson was killed on the... Um, German autobahn, or she was found near to the side of it. So, you know, a, a typical serial killer murder in the way that somebody had presumably picked her up on the motorway, killed her, and dumped her body. Um, this, of course, is before the term serial killer became a thing. But in 1966, there were two more murders, and Voldemar Wolfhardt became the prime suspect based on the fact that somebody had seen a red sport. Yeah. Not necessarily even a Mercedes, just ah, a red okay. sports car. Just a red sports car. In the vicinity, but obviously nobody witnessed the murder. And of course he's just had a play on that by arriving. He's actually, he, he asks to hire one at the airport, doesn't he? He does. Which was what a of, deliberate what of, reference to his own... Uh, one of several references to the case. But yeah. um, the other reason he was uh, considered to be a suspicious character is because he'd disappeared. He was a bit um, of a playboy, wasn't he? So he yeah. wasn't he wasn't in he wasn't in Germany at the time. He'd gone to Spain, hadn't he? Yeah, basically, when they said he disappeared, what they meant was he'd gone on holiday. <laughs> so he was actually in Benidorm, but while he was away and while the police were Somebody trying to find him, him in Germany, um, the tabloid, yeah, yeah, the tabloids went crazy in the way that tabloids do. German tabloids are maybe not quite as bad as British tabloids, but not far short. Certainly, magazines like Build. Were was famously uh, very, very low. Sensationalist, yeah. yeah. So apparently his family were being harassed by journalists. They were being harassed by members of the public who said, oh, your son's a murderer. Um, he was spotted in, <laughs> in Benidorm by German soccer player Gunter Hermann, 
who recognised him as a character called the Cowboy, who was lo- had been... he, he used to be quite flamboyant, didn't he? Where yeah. where, where a cowboy had. Yeah, I mean, you, he's very flamboyant in this film quite a lot as well. But anyway, he was arrested. Uh, they found a gun in the glove compartment of his car, which didn't look good for him. Well, I think he was also charged with having a, a, a gun without a licence initially, wasn't he? Yes. Well, until, until they worked out that, in fact, he did have the right paperwork for that. Yeah, he had a licence for the gun. And then it turned out that um, he, he also had an alibi for when one of the murders occurred because he was in, in Benidorm. He was in Benidorm. With lots of witnesses, wasn't he? Yeah, lots of witnesses. Could place. So, so he obviously. sued. He sued the press, didn't he? He sued, he sued a lot of newspapers. character. Yeah, and won, won those cases. Mm. Now, of course, a year later, he was then arrested again on the charge of um, pimping or procuring. Um, he was accused by an ex-girlfriend. Curing in those days. Yeah. yeah. Or polite term, but um, still pimping. Yeah. He was accused by an ex-girlfriend. He got um, sent down for that, though, didn't he? So he got ten bucks for that. some basis for that one. We don't know. Well, we don't, we don't know what the truth of it all was. I mean... He, he spent ten months inside, I think. It's not... Well, he was sentenced to ten months. Whether he served the whole ten months is is open to question. I mean, I'm not saying that he's guilty or not. He was certainly an interesting character. A man, a man that we, we might call a bit shady today. Well, I think what, what's, what's the most bizarre and interesting thing about it is the fact that he used this notoriety, the fact that he'd been accused of being a murderer, a serial killer, and then kind of went with it and became one of these weird personalities who uh, is thrown into the, the limelight and mm. actually seeks more and more fame by he making milked, a record, didn't he? He, um, he milked it for all it's worth. I mean, he... Which, yeah. is, where, which is where the vampire uh, sort of... Yeah, I mean, we should, we, should, we should probably explain that back in the 60s, certainly in Europe and before the 60s, vampire... It was a term for someone who preyed upon people. It was off, it, it was a pre-serial killer term. It's the kind of thing you, you know, so you'd have the vampire of Dusseldorf and things like that. So anybody who was a bloodthirsty was murderer... Was the basis for um, M? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you'd have the, you know, a bloodthirsty murderer would be called a vampire, or they might be called a werewolf. But, you know, they, it's the classic yeah, monster. Werewolves and serial killers were often mixed in... in, in European folklore, weren't they? Mm. Mm. So, I mean, this is why the whole whole vampire of the highway thing came about, because they're not literally talking about a vampire with fangs and cape and all that sort of stuff. They're talking about... A predator of the highway. A predator, a yep. murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, <laughs> when, when he recorded his pop single as an attempt to become a pop star, apparently he used to go on stage and tear his shirt off and parade around and... You know, he, it was released in Spain as being by Voldemar the Vampire. Uh-huh. And, of course, the track was Benidorm, which was a, a pre-existing song that he did a cover of, but, a, again, a reference to to his case. So, yeah. Or his alibi. By this point, yeah, he was really um, milking it, though, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't have a hit single, it's got to be said. He didn't do any more recording, but then he did move into film. And, we, you know, we can't say that he had a spectacular film career by any stretch of the imagination, but he had a solid film career, more than perhaps somebody who's stumbled into film as a gimmick 
Well, the weird thing is, it's performance in this, as, as we might sort of discuss later on, it's not that bad, is it? Really? Yeah. For someone who's not a trained actor compared with... Uh, I mean, it's always well, it's hard... To, dub, so it's, it's always to hard tell. to tell with the dubbing, and, yeah. and by all accounts, the, the dubbing for him in English is a lot worse than it was for the Spanish version. Uh, people can decide that for themselves, I suppose, if they if they do a compare and contrast. But you know, he's he's perfectly fine. You know, he doesn't look awkward. You know, not, and not, he's got he's got not, that leading man look in a way. I mean, the shock of blonde hair is a bit. It's very blonde. You know, <laughs> that's what people focus on. But no, there's there's no there's no acting from anyone in this film where you suddenly you know you're gritting your teeth and, and waiting for the performance. To yeah, move. that's what I mean. You know, yeah. he's not. He's not kind of made to look stupid by all the professionals. Yeah, he doesn't have to do that much, I suppose. But still, you know, he's playing two different roles, and that in itself is is quite hard. And this is now coming up to the um, second murder. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's been quite a while between between. Uh, victims, unlike as we sort of alluded to earlier on, this idea that this film lurched. If you read some reviews, um, it seems to imply it lurches from one murder to the other every ten minutes, and mm. women just strip off um, before being uh, assaulted. But it doesn't actually work like that, does it? There's no. quite lengthy scenes um, in between with a lot of sparring with the uh, inspector. Yeah, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. In just one second, but obviously here we have the other, the other murder, and depending which version of the film you watch, a bit more nudity. There's, there's two different versions, isn't there, of this scene? So, yeah. And it's interesting, I think, if you look at these films. I mean, I know that we've discussed this before, and we have slightly different takes on it. But I always think that quite a lot of European cinema like this, even though the nudity is clearly gratuitous and it's there for titillation, it's still oddly matter of fact. It's not wildly eroticized. I mean, you know, it's all the nudity in this film, apart from one sex scene, it's all people taking showers or just getting undressed. Um, they're not. They're not having. They're not I doing think, sexy things in the way that maybe the Hammer films. Concentrated I think that's the point of, of some of the film's criticism is, is the fact that yeah, they're just doing that before they get killed, and it doesn't form an integral part of the uh, of the of the actual. Yeah. Um, Plot. I mean, they're not integral characters because they just come, take their clothes off, and get killed. Yeah, I think that's what people were uh, were, were observing about the film. So yeah, maybe in Hammer, it's it's more weaved in in, in, in lust for a vampire, vampire circus. Maybe you know, certainly in Twins of Evil, it's it's all part and parcel, isn't it? Of the it's all sexualized movie. as well. You know, it's, yeah. it's much more openly erotic. I mean, you look oh. at something like Twins of Evil where she's masturbating the candle and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, here there's no there's she no is, sexual element to his she killing. She's just in nude and killed, and yeah. that's the fact. He's not he's I, not stripping his victims. He's not molesting them in any way, shape, or form. He's just attacking them while they they've taken a shower. But I think also this is this we should say now. This is why this film really was ahead of the game for Spanish cinema because mm. nudity. As we've already said, because of the Franco years, wasn't allowed. So this was the export version. They knew they were going yeah. to sell it on international markets, so they put the nudity in. But until that point, I don't think any Spanish films that I'm aware of had, you know, in the horror exploitation 
mm. subgenre have nudity in them. Yeah. I could be wrong, but from what I've looked at in my researches, it would appear that this is this is quite a pioneering film. And even even in terms of if you're thinking that Hammer, although you know film productions had had export versions with nudity in before. Um, this well, this for Spain is quite an important, quite an important uh, forward. I'm not saying <laughs> this is an important film. I'm just saying it's it's ahead of its time, perhaps in 1969. Well, I think export versions are just a fascinating thing. I mean, there's something that I have a you know a absolute yeah fascination for because it's this whole idea that there's so many multiple versions of films and. You're wondering where does the definitive film exist in that sense? Well, it doesn't really, does it? I mean, look, yeah. should we just explain that what we're talking about here in terms of um, you know export or continental or unclothed? I mean, way back in sort of as far back as 1959, uh, filmmakers were making films where they'd have a scene or two hmm. that they could put in extra, like The Flesh and the Beans has yeah. extra nudity, um, and Jack, Jack the Ripper. Ripper from the same film production yeah. team. I mean, Hammer, Hammer famously, all the years that I was growing up reading about Hammer films, there was this denial by Hammer experts and Hammer films themselves that they ever shot any extra scenes for foreign markets which of course as we now know is complete nonsense they did it all the time there's an additional nude scene in the man who could cheat death there's nude oh, scenes yeah. in the mummy the mummy i didn't know about yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously there's the extra gore scenes in films like dracula so yeah. they, which they, they did that for the japanese market eventually yeah. they it? did that constantly and it carried on all through the 1960s additional nudity well, it was in American productions as well, like the the brain that wouldn't die. Yeah, uh, which is sex getting to go to college. But, you know that that had lots of uh, sort of models yeah. unclothed, and it was definitely just aimed at the European market because yeah. it couldn't be shown that in the states at the time. That and it certainly carried on with British films well into the mid nineteen seventies, when a lot of the guys making sexploitation films, softcore movies, would shoot hardcore versions on the quiet. Sometimes with a completely different cast, sometimes with the same cast. Ah, oh, that's that's going a little bit further, isn't it? To actually shoot sex scenes rather than just the it's the same concept, though. It's, it's shooting it, one that's shooting a version that's for the overseas market because the version you have won't sell overseas. And I think that's probably, you know, it's, it's that weird thing that people have with, like, with horror films. Horror, if a horror film didn't have nudity and it wasn't a horror film for some audiences. There are some critics that think that now. I can think of one uh, I know. I mean, uh, but we should just mention, I mean, we've jumped straight into the 70s. You're not now. talking about me, by the way. Let's just make that I'm not clear. talking about you, and, and I won't name the website, but, uh, yeah, there is one critic who complains about a lack of skin. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, Devil Doll, uh, 1963, mm. uh, has three... Uh, extra scenes in it that were made for the, you know, which Finder General had some extra stuff. It did, it's yeah. Like, I mean, um, it's interesting when these things turn up. I mean, there's so many of them that still today. Possibly Curse of the Crimson Altar, I think, also had extra unclothed Yeah, stuff, stuff like that's hard as well because then you get into the whole idea of publicity stills. Yeah, they often, taken, shot, they often shot stuff that yeah looked, yeah. looked pretty outrageous. Stuff for magazines like Cinema X and things like that that yeah. could sell yeah. it. 
Certainly, night after night after night definitely has two versions of a closed and unclosed scene. So it was a very common practice. Certainly. Yeah, and it's all—it's all obviously to do with local censorship. And in Spain, as we've mentioned, Franco was you know, General Franco, not just Franco. Clearly, was very much down on any level of permissiveness. So there was no way you were going to have a Spanish film of this time coming out with nude scenes in. Well, wasn't his famous uh, his favourite actress? Um, Teen idol Marisol. Marisol, who, yeah, was was like a a teenage little, you know, just made wholesome Family teenage fair. films, usually about heroic bullfighters. So, oh, you know, yeah. if you That's watch those cool. films now, there's no nudity, but there's a lot of bullfighting, <laughs> which some people might find a, a little bit more <laughs> more difficult. Um, she, funnily enough, obviously then went off she to make a horror film of her own. Corruption of Chris Miller, wasn't she? She, she was. was. Wonderful Spanish movie. Yeah. One of the more serious ones from 72, which uh, yeah. is definitely worth watching. So she, she moved with the time. I mean, her. if you believe her autobiography, uh, there's no reason not to then. You know, she had a terrible time as a teenage actress with lecherous producers. Lecherous producers, and... well, that's, that's a story, an age-old story, isn't it, unfortunately? Which Absolutely. Still, still finding out more about now, aren't Yeah, we? you know, being being the favourite of the dictator didn't save her from any of that, unfortunately. Just yesterday I was reading about Jerry Lewis and the accusations about him surfacing. Well, maybe we should not go into that. <laughs> but, you know, it's an ongoing, ongoing issue, isn't it? So, um, the, the other thing I, I think we didn't notice was, was how lucky, perhaps, they were um, at the time that it was snowing during uh, 69 in December, where mm. we shot in, all the exteriors anyway, so yeah. shot in Stuttgart. I imagine that that's, that, helps, that is luck. Help, that helps the film considerably, doesn't it? Because I think, as has as been noted many times, lots of productions that are snow-filled mm. really do have a different atmosphere than it would have been, um, I mean... Famously, Sergio Corbucci's Western, The Great Silence, is so wonderful because it's in the snow. Yeah. And that's the instantly memorable spaghetti Western you think of. I mean, I, I, you know, on a much smaller scale, I had an experience working on, on a film set maybe 10 years ago where it was the coldest winter for 60 years and it just snowed heavily for two weeks. And it changed the whole concept of the film. You know, the film suddenly became bigger just because of these snowy locations. Yeah, so it can help. There's an amusing part here, isn't there, in the film, which uh, is probably worth just noting on screen, because we, we need to probably talk a little bit more about Valdemar. We and, do. You know, he's acting now against himself, isn't he? He's acting against his invisible uh, uh, count role, who, who eventually does appear. If you want to get really meta, we could say that it's Valdemar Volpart versus Val Davis. Oh, indeed. <laughs> because Val Davis was or, the name or, he adopted. Or, or I wasn't sure if it was Val or Wall because, it, yeah, he anglicised his name, didn't he? Yeah. And, um, yeah, but... Because um, but, I've, I've seen it spelt with both the V and the W. Yeah, so it's one of those things, uh, often in these productions as well, there's so many different spellings, isn't there? It's, again, yeah. not, not any way to know which is the absolute correct term but um i think as, as, as you alluded to before he went and worked with franco for quite quite a while yeah he did um otro lado de espejo um he did love camp which he worked of course with his with his wife at the time um apparently he's in some additional scenes of virgin among the living dead 
And weirdly, the most weird thing, but I that, suppose... But that, that film, Virgin of the Living Dead, I mean, there's loads of different versions of that, and there's so many different actors mm. that appear in so many different scenes, isn't yeah. there? I mean, I, I, I'd noted... Um, I haven't seen the film for, for a number of years, but I've noted he was in extra garden scenes. But I mean, they, they shot extra stuff for Euro scene, didn't they? Didn't mm. Jean Roland even shoot extra yeah. scenes for that one? So, yeah, who knows how many actors are in there? <laughs> Again, another, another movie where you think, where's the definitive cut of this film? Well, the same with the, the film you just mentioned, El Altro Lado de. Which is another film Which that has had got several different versions, several different clothed and unclothed versions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and a very, very long version, which is much more jazz tinged, apparently, according yeah. to uh, Steve Thrower's definitive uh, Franco study. I mean, I remember getting that film as a Spanish VHS and being staggered at just how unsexy it was because all the, the nude scenes had been refilmed or alternatively filmed shall we say so yeah the english language title of um Otro Lado was the obscene mirror though i don't think it really had much of an english release no it's one of those films that uh that, that has got various versions i think but as we said but it doesn't get an english i mean a lot of franco's stuff didn't get a proper english release yeah variously due to the fact that it perhaps wasn't suitable for uh, markets with different levels of censorship or... I think also just the sheer quantity of stuff that was coming out at the time. Just not everything would get a release because there's not enough cinemas <laughs> to show these films. And some of it was quite obscure and uh, yeah. odd, wasn't it? Even, I mean, even if you looked at his, his, his take on uh, Frankenstein from that... Uh... I mean, we can, we can look at this in the same way that we have with... Blu-rays now that there's still so much material that's not out there in any kind of any kind of version, let alone a special edition. Really well-known films are still wallowing in obscurity for various reasons, and some of that's to do with rights. Some of it's to do with the fact that it's just you know, no matter how many labels there are out there, they can oh, only put out so much stuff. To, to go back to uh, Val Davis or Wal Davis. Uh... Uh, I mean, his his work in something like Franco's Machiste film, which was quite bizarre, because Machiste was one of those characters from uh, uh, who appeared in early Italian films, right from back to the mm. silent era, and, and big muscle man Hercules muscle man. figure. And yeah, if, if they were exported, any Italian movies were translated into kind of Hercules, weren't they? Yeah. Um, but he. Got cast by Franco as being some kind of sort of dandy and fop, didn't he? And uh, it was a film with lots of erotic interludes. And well, there, there are at least publicity stills of him stark naked. Yeah, he's standing around in the uh, in all his glory, isn't he? Um, but those those are the sort of films you can kind of understand didn't get a release hmm. uh, around <laughs> many places. They were they were popular France and Italy. Yeah, popular in certain parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he went. He was in another thriller for uh, Jose Luis Madrid called The Hyena. Yeah, was that it was by a spy film? I think. Or I think it's just a, an action, action film. Movie. Kind of, kind of maybe a, a Spanish version of a Alicia Teski or something. Okay. I haven't seen it, so I can't really say. Okay. But it's what it looks like from the poster artwork. 
Yeah, well, a lot of these things were quite obscure, weren't they? So, yeah. I mean, he was also in The Fish with the Eyes of Gold, which is a kind of Spanish giallo. Yeah. Um, which kind of played off a little bit with his um, persona still, being this guy who gets accused of being a murderer. I, I did check out the film, but um, I have to say, it wasn't, it wasn't the most scintillating. Uh, I, I don't think it's a more obscure Spanish giallo called up to uh, I think we've seen with this one as well that, it, it makes constant little references to things that might be connected to his case, you know, that he's falsely accused of being the vampire and that he's got an alibi because he wasn't even in the country at the time. So there's that sense of little references. And it has to be said that by the time this film came out, the case of the vampire of the highway was actually almost forgotten. Quite forgotten, yeah. Yeah, the last murder, I think, was in 1967. Um, shortly after he was released from prison, although we shouldn't obviously <laughs> connect those two things whatsoever. But, yeah, time shifted a lot more quickly back in those days, and a case that was two years old was ancient history by this stage. So yeah, I don't it's, think... It's not like nowadays where the internet keeps everything alive, is it? Yeah, so I don't think that this film essentially could have really cashed in on the case because the case was already just forgotten. I mean, if it was known at all. I think obviously because a couple of the victims were Americans, it maybe had a bit of attention from the American press. But even then, probably not that much. No, the, only, the only references you ever see to this, if you look it, it up online, is Germany and Spain. It gave Valdemar a foot in the door to European cinema, as we've just sort of alluded to. And he carried on yeah. throughout the 70s, didn't he? Apparently. Yeah, he was in Red Rings of Fear, which is one of the more wildly entertaining cellos. It like, is. Not, not one of the best, but one of the most fun. No, that's, that's 1978, Alberto Negrin, um, third, the third film in, in Massimo Dallamano's trilogy, yeah, I mean, School uh, Girls in Peril. I recall seeing the trailers for that film long before I saw the movie and just thinking, this looks like the most outrageous movie imaginable. Even, uh, yeah, even the, the cut versions was pretty sleazy. So Yeah, uh, fantastic. I haven't seen it for years, so I can't recall his role in that, but um, I'm sure he's wonderful. He played, I think he played one of the, one of the kind of academic suspects. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, but interestingly, but I mean, he was he was making an aviation documentary oh, in 1980. Oh, yes, that's what I was going to come on to, yeah. Yeah, um, then a DC-3 aircraft that was involved in that documentary crashed, and it took with it both the pilot and the co-pilot, and most of the footage of the film, if not all the footage of the film. The wreckage was never found, so nobody really knows what happened to that plane. But it almost feels like the end of the line for him. He made one more movie in 1983 that was co-written by his wife. But after that, he's just slipped into obscurity. He's, by all accounts, is still alive. I'm sure he's got no idea that so he's... Absolutely just... nothing after that. Your, no. your extensive research. Can't find it. I, I think you know you've written a piece on him as well recently, haven't you? Yeah, and you know, I looked, I looked all over the place for anything that he might have done since, even outside the film business, and there's nothing. So... You know, maybe he just went back to being a playboy, uh, an ageing playboy, but you know, was living on whatever money he'd made from making movies. Perhaps he'd invested it wisely, who knows? But yeah, I, I can imagine that he's probably sat at home, assuming he is still alive, um, totally unaware that he's this kind of weird cult figure 
from the unaware, strange a, European. Unaware movie. there's a fascinating audio commentary being being recorded now for a Blu-ray release of the horrible sexy vampire. And digging up his uh, his sad and mysterious past. And it is a mysterious past. I mean, even in the mid-60s, he was doing things like turning up at muscle men shows as the MC and and was being accused of all sorts of weird things. You know, the suggestion that he was, you know, somehow involved in shady deals. None of which has ever been proven, but it's all fascinating nevertheless. You know, I, I do like those odd little characters who, you know, you think, you know, may have been sitting on the edge of the law and doing interesting things and are quite fun. Well, he keeps your website alive, doesn't he, David? Well, you know, he's he's not been my top seller. But we're getting back to um, more... What kind of weird side plots that just appear out of nowhere with mysterious characters who have nothing to do with the rest of the film other than to crowbar a bit more nudity in? Well, and this we have is, this. This you is know, the these... excuse to have more victims, isn't it? Now, because it's been a, a certain point in time where another victim is required. But also introducing these these two other characters who don't really do Seems very do much, much at all. The, the lovers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're peering in through windows, and you think, well, this should surely go somewhere, but it doesn't go anywhere. No, I mean that's that's one of the the, 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 the kind of prerequisites of a lot of this kind of trashy cinema where sometimes, uh, particularly in, in uh, co-productions, they had several different writers. Um, in some movies you see, particularly Italian movies, you'll see as many as five or six writers and you think, where has the plot gone? And it's because they've all contributed certain elements and then something's gone off at a tangent and no one's really pulled it back together. I think it's not that far removed from a lot of American films now, though, where you see you know, multiple rewrites and other writers coming in doing stuff. So the credits might only show one or two writers, but we know get, they've they been often through. Don't get credited, do they? We yeah. know they've been they're through dozens script, of writers. Script doctors, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the whole film is put together by committee because not only there's a particularly unexciting attack occurring on screen, though, where, uh, where yeah, it was another one of those the the, the invisible uh, killer. I mean. Um, it is strange, Alan. Just a year prior to this, or around this, nineteen seventy, there was the Orloff and the Invisible Man, which is yeah. a, a French production with the fantastic Invisible. He's an ape, isn't ape? he? Yes, he, uh, it's a Pierre Ch Chevalier Eurocine type thing, isn't it? Which is also pretty scuzzy, I seem to recall. There's lots yeah. of nudity in that as well. Interestingly, another film that, of course, was made in different versions because. The original UK VHS release of that was entirely nudity-free. Oh, you mean that? that yeah, because it was also called The Invisible Dead as well, yeah. wasn't it? Which made no sense, because how were the dead invisible? Well, yeah. how's, a, how's a giant ape invisible? Well, quite. But uh, another, another entirely uh, enjoyable film for all the wrong reasons. But it, clearly, again, it's, it's a film that was shot for different markets in different versions. Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is the interesting thing that there's a lot of talk about how, um, as he's as he's called in the English language version, I think Baron Oblonsky, 
Oblonsky. Isn't yeah, his it? um, his first name's Adolf. Adolf Oblonsky, which is, which is yes. a bit unfortunate, isn't it? I mean, it is, and you have thought it's that, set in Germany. <laughs> you would have thought that by 1969 that name might have been a bit verboten, but never mind. Uh, uh, possibly also, uh, I think, as we were, we were saying before, just a bit of a joke on the part of the, the dubbers. The dubbers, yeah. Uh, famously, you know, dubbers used to have their own little in-jokes and some change dialogue and do whatever they wanted. And, of course, by that point, the people who made the film w- weren't even interested or cared. They no, moved they, on to their next production. They would so not have seen it. They wouldn't care about it. They wouldn't be checking out what had happened to the, uh, to the release that went to another country. I mean, yeah. We've obviously we've talked about this earlier to a degree, but we shouldn't pretend that these are auteur movies. No. The people who made them would come in, do their job, go off to the next project. They probably didn't even watch the film. They certainly weren't involved in editing. But, but as I was just about to say, there's this whole thing or this whole little subplot that emerges about him potentially being an alcoholic who hallucinates. Yeah, that's brought up several times. He keeps being accused by the uh, by the inspector, doesn't he, of drinking too much. And, uh, they kind of run with that a bit, but don't again, don't go far enough with it for you to really understand what what the point was. But um, it's amusing. Um, well, I was going to just note some of the interiors as well. Um, yeah, in some of these scenes. I think, I think these are impressive. Well, well, what's what's interesting, I think, is the fact that uh, it's shot in Spain for the interiors, quite clearly, but exteriors, as we know, Stuttgart, Germany. But yeah. it kind of fits a little bit more. There's something about the Germanic and Spanish um, interiors that don't look that out of place, unlike the film we mentioned before where uh, Paul Nashi was running around Soho and, you know, he goes straight yeah. into a, what is quite clearly a Spanish tavern. Uh, for the interior shots, but these these all hold up well. It, well, I it think also it does. There's no jarring like that. It just does seem like it's all in the same place. I mean, we should obviously point out that horror films, since the days of the Universal films in the 1930s, have had this kind of weird Middle Europe oh, yes. concept, where the whole of Europe is this kind of weird mash of things. So you can have, um, you know, something that's in Transylvania, but it's full of cockneys going, God bless you, governor. <laughs> Vasaria, I think it was, isn't it? The <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, mm. like the whole of Europe, from London <laughs> through, through to Germany, is like one big mash of a country. Well, well curiously, no, when I watched the House that Screened, um, the, the, the maids and the, the servants did have... Cockney accents in the dub mm. version, and yet the the, the main cast, but the, I suppose the young ladies are all, are all well, well spoken as they should be if they were way, attending a private school. It's that way of speaking to the audience who's watching it in that that's language. Right. That's what I was alluding to. The, the, the dubbers have clearly realised that you know you have to understand this class distinction. Yeah. So we're going if you're an English speaking uh, viewer, you, then we're going to give them a Cockney accent because that's what you kind of understand in 1969 even even if you're in america you'll kind of yeah, get that yeah, distinction if, if it makes no sense because it's set in spain in, in france rather which is yeah. something else that's interesting isn't it how a lot of these films were set in other countries you know i mean um, yeah it's that thing of um this bad stuff is not happening in our country it's happening in some other country yeah yeah which is which is easier for the censors to do to, to be relaxed about yeah i think and that's not 
clearly, it's clearly not just a Spanish thing. That's something that went on <laughs> across countries. You know, British censors were much happier to see dodgy stuff happening in Florida land than they were in the UK. And arriving on screen now, rather late in the day for a leading lady, you might think, but here she is nevertheless. This is Patricia Laran, who was a Spanish actress. Um, her real name was actually Encarnita Garcia. Um, Encarnita Garcia, if you like. Um, and she was actually tipped for big things in the 1960s. She was seen as like a bright young star when she started out around the age of 19. Obviously that didn't really work out for her, but she did a couple of films for Jose Luis Madrid. Um, she did both his Jack the Ripper film and his Dr. Petio film, but clearly she didn't become a big star. She actually retired from acting altogether shortly after this film was made, a few years after this film was made anyway. I think by the mid-70s she'd, she'd packed it all in. Stunning when she's on screen with Valdemar because they've both got this this peroxide. You know, they they clearly hair. shared the hair dye together, didn't they? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it is quite amusing to see them both together. Here they go. But um, yeah, it's like they blend into one each. <laughs> become as one. And the irony is that I think they're both supposed to be English, aren't they? They're not supposed to be German. Yeah, I mean, his character is he's from London. Um, yeah, she's just flown over from London, so I yeah. guess they're... Yeah, yeah, that's, um, they obviously look very, very, very English. I mean, I suppose if he's Baron Ablonsky, then he's got some kind of East European heritage, but even so, yeah, that hair has not come from, uh, from genetics, has it, let's face it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's amusing for what it is. <laughs> But yeah, she's she's interesting and she's she's not bad in this film. playing in the background here. I mean, I think we should note that there's basically two two sort of themes by Angel Artiega, who's yeah. the composer. Um, so, I mean, what often used to happen is, is a lot of these movies would have a couple of themes that are just overused quite a lot throughout the film, wouldn't they? Yeah. Or they do one theme where they do lots of different variations on it. The Italian composers were, were, were very infamous for doing that. And they'd even recycle it again into different um, movies. But it's a lovely, catchy main theme. Um, yeah, it's got a real atmosphere to it. But, and, um, um, yeah, Angel Ortega had a you know, a much more interesting career than you well, might have he, expected. He died quite young, didn't he? At fifty-five. Yeah. Yeah. In nineteen eighty-four. But um, it's a nice atmospheric score. But you know, outside, you know, he did quite a few film scores, and also he did a lot of, you know, well, you proper were... proper orchestral music, like chamber music and the, and choral music. So you know, he wasn't 
you know, just some hack. He was genuine, genuinely respected in the Spanish music world. Oh yes, because he worked for the Madrid Royal Conservatory, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um... and again, it's the kind of thing that people just dismiss about these films and think, oh, they're all just cheap trash with people who are, you know, amateurs or you know bad at what they do. But it's absolutely not the case. No, professional professional um, 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 composers who worked on, on lots and lots of movies. So um, the fact that they did so much work is possibly why some of it does sound rather repetitive. And um, and certainly, I think as we said earlier on, he's inspired by Hammer films, but of course that was the style of the time. So he's doing that kind of James Bernard bombastic stuff here, which I guess is is the second theme of the movie. Yeah, it's basically two themes, isn't it? It's fun, it's fun. sense that we're seeing we're seeing Baron Vinegar resurrected but well he so he's marching around killing people and then he goes back to being a skeleton and then he comes back to life as the... I just couldn't really understand I'll be honest I, I've watched this several times uh, uh, leading up to this commentary I, 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 I couldn't quite work out uh, what was going on sometimes his hair Seem to change in tone as well. Sometimes it's more grey, and, and sometimes it's <laughs> much of being dark. brought back from the dead constantly takes it out of you. Maybe because he, if the while he hasn't had blood, he yeah gets to start to you know, go back to his skeletal state. I mean, it's not explained. It's not. Uh, it's not discussed at all. But you know, it's um, it's one of those things where. You just have, again, you have to wonder well, how many scriptwriters were working on this stuff and what, and what yeah. essentially was in anyone's mind, really, apart from just get the thing out as fast as possible. Exactly. And here we have... He wears some fine red jumpers, it must be said, because yeah. I think that was famous as part of the case, wasn't it? It's something he was arrested in a red jumper. Was that, am I just <sighs> making that up? Yeah, I'm not sure. You might be, but you. But it's no, entirely possible. Pretty sure there was some some deliberate. It was a deliberate reference to not not only with the red, uh, the red sports car as we mentioned, but I think there was something about red jumper as well. I mean, we know that obviously in life he was a bit of a dandy, and in the film he's a bit of a dandy. He certainly likes to dress up in what. In 1969, would have been the fashionable togs. There's some fun fashions. This is something I was going to come on to uh, in the later stages of the film because they, the fashions seem to just sort of uh, <laughs> go come out. Of, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. If, if you're a fan of, of this type of kitsch kind of, um, uh, you know, late 60s, early 70s fashion, then uh, you will enjoy quite a few of the scenes here. Not not from just what he wears, but from what what um, Susan is wearing as well. No, oh, absolutely. Um, so uh, I mean, I was just thinking, literally just thinking, looking at this scene, that it's like, yeah, she has, she very much has the look of the kind of 
early 70s mail order catalogue fashion model. She could just strike the pose and just like, look at me in my cool slacks. Um, did, we, did, we, did we reference his taxi derby we didn't, hobby? We didn't yeah, mention we, that we, earlier. but we, uh, we skated past that, because I think he mentioned that right uh, in the early stages of being interviewed by the inspector, which I thought was interesting, <laughs> because obviously it, it's, it's either a deliberate or non-deliberate allusion to Psycho. Um, <laughs> I'm an international playboy who likes hobby. to find his things in life, but I like to stuff dead animals. Yeah, that's quite amusing. I mean, that's, and he's back that, on the and he's back on the drink as back well. Back on the booze, uh, yeah. the same. So they clearly had a point to be made here. Um, they wouldn't have shot that scene otherwise. That's quite a good fox. It's got to be said. I mean, I've seen much worse taxidermy than that. The ones, so it, the, the ones around at your place aren't, aren't half as good as that. No, no. And here he is meeting himself. Yeah, this is the bit where we said his acting's okay, but there's there's a bit here which you know normally he I wouldn't, sells I wouldn't it quite. Mention what's going on on screen too much, but. He, he does a bit of a bit of heavy rubbing his eyes, doesn't he? At some point, yeah. he just can't believe what he's. But they do a good job of making the two characters different. I mean, you know, he's actually got, I guess, natural hair here. You know, it actually looks older in that role than he does in his main role. If you want to count the heroic role as the main role. So they actually do quite a good job of making them seem like different people. <laughs> you clearly disagree, Aiden. <laughs> I, I just love this scene. It's hilarious. <laughs> as, 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 yeah, as we said earlier on, no one's going to be pretending this is one of the best movies of all time. You've got to be bite for fun, and that's what it is, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, almost like with The Devil's Men, which we, 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 we did a, a commentary for recently, um, I, I think I was amused to read one of the reviews where a reviewer said uh, that uh, we clearly uh, was in, uh, adore, adore all these films. It's like, well, you know, we, we've been asked we've been asked to do uh, uh, a commentary track because clearly we enjoy these films, not necessarily. Yeah, we're not we're not we're not going to do something for a film that we don't like. No, um, and and clearly whoever's uh, asked us uh, is thinking it might be a film that we can have a bit of fun with. I mean, like strip. Nude for Your Killer, which was the first uh, the first one of these that we did. Well, I think it's an interesting point, and maybe maybe it's not a point to go into, but I'll go into it nevertheless. That you can, and some people do, take this stuff too seriously because it was never made to be taken hugely seriously in the first place. There's no great subtext in this film other than the obvious one about references to the real-life case. But essentially, it's just a fun exploitation horror film with gratuitous nudity, as we're seeing right here. Um, he, he looks surprised. He, he, that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's entirely... You know, this is the only openly erotic nude scene in the film in the sense that it's a love scene. But just the way she walks in and it's like, here I am. <laughs> You've not, seen, you've, not seen, you've not seen me like this before. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's a very valid point. Now, there are sometimes I, I, I see uh, websites and, and people who I, I have loved European cult cinema for you know thirty years or whatever. Um, yeah, we've been along a long time. So, some people do seem to treat it like a little bit too seriously, perhaps, yeah. um, and get a bit obsessive about you know uh, certain actors, certain directors. 
but you know, they, they just just these are just good fun movies, you know. And um, that's that's what now it's great to see that they're getting a new lease of life on that's, Blu-ray. You know, that's the I other mean, side. I mean, I think I never thought I would see this film in decent quality, let alone be be you know commenting on it. And it's mm-hmm. the same with the Devil's Men and various other films that we've we've worked yeah. on. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's the difference. All good for fans, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's the real difference. It's that outside that, by all means, absolutely encouraging labels to resurrect this stuff, pick up on this stuff, see the value in it, films that were considered worthless for a long time, and to bring them back for a new audience in editions that would have been unimaginable even a few years ago. With, with often a host of extras that yeah. really, really make it worthwhile. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's So that's great. Mm. But as you say, on the other hand, there is that point that you get some people taking them so seriously that they lose the sense of fun that was there in the first place because these are supposed to be entertaining movies. Movies that you can have a good time with. They're not supposed to be poured over in some kind of academic fashion. Now, here's a point, or here's not a point, perhaps, (laughs) however you want to look at it, that it looks as if the film has been censored in some point. Because that was a big jump cut. There's a jump cut, and in the uh, a Spanish trailer that I've seen for the movie, which I'm not sure if it was an original trailer or a trailer made later for VHS, maybe, I don't know, but at the, at the end of that scene, when he rips uh, uh, Red Knickers off, you do see a tiny flash, very, very briefly, of pubic hair. So clearly that shot may have been in there, and then they decided that's a bridge too far. You know, uh, topless was okay. Bottom, bottomless is okay. Yeah, I mean, not, again, this is 1969. Not pubic hair. Going into 1970. See, there's Pro- wonderful fashions. I have to just, sorry, uh, oh. uh, interrupt you there, David. When they're on screen, his his, his jumper is, is, has to be commented on uh, in terms of what we were saying earlier on. And, and what she's wearing as well, which is like a typical late 60s, early 70s PVC black outfit, isn't it? It's like very, very trashy pop art. Um, it is great. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and of course, in all these old films, it, we, we should also say admirers of terrible wallpaper that no longer exists. Always, I've often seen reviews where someone said, "Well, I don't know what's going on on screen now, but look at the wallpaper behind. My God, that's much much worse than what's going on." His windows look like they need a good clean as well. But I've got to say that if um, if Mondo Macabro don't actually start manufacturing those jumpers as a a side sale project for this movie, I'll be very disappointed. Because I want one. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> With a snakeskin jacket as well, I think, he, which, is, which is what he wears at some point if he hasn't already. When I wasn't <laughs> Clearly I already have one of those, Adrian. Yeah. So, um, but we did say something maybe about the international releases of this film. Um, yeah, because that, that's, we, we've obviously touched upon the fact that, that there's all, all these different edits and continental versions and um, clothed and unclothed versions. But I mean, um, the fact that they needed to sell it around the world meant that sometimes these these films didn't get released until quite a few years later, and the UK didn't come yeah. out until 1976. Mm. Um, because that's, as we alluded, you know, said the market was absolutely jam-packed in the early 70s. Yeah. I think 1972 was, was possibly the, 
the biggest crowded year for horror films ever. But also, I think that if you if you look at it in a modern way, seven years doesn't seem that long. Back back then, it was like a generation almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, a 1969 film coming out in 1976 was you know a bit like somebody releasing you know a prog rock album that was recorded in 1969. <laughs> The well, start of the punk era. Well, it came out. It came out in um, in seventy six with the crimes of the Black Cat, which is a nineteen seventy two mm. Italian giallo. So you know that film would waited a few years as well to get released. And don't forget, of course, that they would then play for years and years. They just do that, the circuit. That's the other very interesting point, isn't it? I mean, these films were were, were hanging around uh, playing provincial cinemas for. It's not like nowadays where films get shown and then they're off. Um, yeah. I mean, you could see a film from the early 70s still playing in the early 80s. Uh, yeah. I, I certainly bumped into, you know, um, things like Dracula, Terror of the Living Dead, which has got Paul Nashie in, in a small role, back in the early 80s. I yeah. think, you know... It's, I mean, I think it, in, those, in those pre-video days or those early video days, when theatrical was still significant for low-budget independent films and there were still those distributors, yeah, these films would carry on playing forever because they just needed something to fill out double bills yeah and, and and in the case of that one i've just mentioned that wasn't mentioned you know you just turned up at the cinema and found oh there's this obscure early 70s supporting i mean when movie, i was you know? when i was a kid my local cinema had two screens and one of those screens would play the new mainstream films, and the other screen yeah. would, would always Lady, be like double bills double of bills of older stuff, sexploitation films from Europe. Yeah, sometimes Com- comedies, some, often. Yeah, yeah, sex yeah. comedies or horror films. Mm. So you'd get those kind of Lucio Fulci. The movies would play there, like the Beyond. Mm-hmm. You'd have double bills with um, Mario. Cut, it must be said. Yeah, Mario Bava's um, Shock playing with the blood spattered bride that was a one that, that one, came that around one was, was playing in the early 70s came late, around late a, 70s rather yeah came around a lot as well it, it would early 80s was, uh, i think it yeah. would probably carry on to didn't it yeah 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 so all that kind of stuff was mm. was commonplace then so it's not unusual for a film like this to play yeah you know years after so, it was I mean, made yeah, blood spattered bride is, is is a standout spanish uh, horror film but yeah that didn't see a release in the uk did it so, no so not it until the end of the 70s so yeah i think the point is Quite a few of them took quite a while to get a release, and then they didn't go away, did they? They would hang around for quite a while. Yeah, um, because if you've got a film called The Horrible Sexy Vampire, then it almost doesn't matter what the film is for audiences. The title is what's going to pull them in. They don't need, And that's that weird thing. You think if these films played now in cinemas, people wouldn't turn up because they don't know who the stars are, they don't know who the director is. But then it didn't matter. People would just go out and watch People films would with interesting times. Friday titles. night to see whatever was playing on a Friday yeah. night. They didn't really care. Yeah, I mean, obviously for some for certain certain double bills or, or, or certain movies, um, the, the place would be packed out. You know, for a double bill of Quadrophenia and Scum or something, hmm. and, you know, it would be packed. But you know, these sort of things would play to very small audiences. They're just trying to get out a few but... a few a few quid out of what they could get out of. Um, I mean, let's, let's mention some of the other titles that this got released in. I mean, in Italy, it was um, Le Mani di Mr. Winiga, Omicida Sessuale, which is 
Translation is the madness of sex, murderer, Mr. Winnegar. So they're, they're totally going for, they're forgetting the vampire angle completely, and they're just going for this, this serial killer thing. So perhaps Italy, you know, that was just a different way of marketing it. Um, I've, I've seen some of the photo boosters mm. that they use for the Italian campaign, and they're really lurid. Some of them seem to have extra shots. They've, they've kind of interpolated into the background to make right. it look a lot sleazier than it is. So they're almost trying to sell it as a kind of sexy jello in a way. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Certainly, I mean, equally, certainly like, upping upping the level of forgetting the vampire. You know, in Germany, altogether. it was it was the vampire, the vampire von Schloss Frankenstein. So the the vampire of Castle Frankenstein. Germans, of course, <laughs> just had to get Frankenstein. They, they were notorious for crowbarring the name Frankenstein into Anything. all sorts of horror films at that time. Frankenstein was hugely popular in Germany, it seems, because you know they they would use the name Frankenstein in Godzilla films. Yes, yes. Here's your favourite scene of the film, Adrian. Uh, this scene, I, the only reason that I, I would mention this, not it's not my favourite scene, but um, <laughs> we've, we've gone past my favourite scene, but, um, um, which, which we won't discuss, um, is because it's, it's perhaps a reference to, to Roman Polanski's, uh, what is it, 1966, 67? Yeah, Dance of the Vampires, Dance of the Vampires. Fearless, fearless Vampire Killers. Yeah, pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck. Yeah. <laughs> they used to do those dreadful awe things, didn't they? Uh, spider Baby or the maddest it was a very story ever thing. told. Yeah, yeah it's one of those. All things. kind of Doctor Strange love inspired, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Those magnificent men in their flying machines. Yeah, Although we say that, there wasn't the incredibly strange creatures yeah. or blah, blah, blah came up before Doctor Strange love, I think. So. There's his wonderful jacket. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's all happening on screen now. Um, I mean, this we, film, well, you know, carrying on about its release, it was released in Australia. Yeah, we should, should um, mention that, yeah. We should not the R-rated version. Not an R-rated oh. version, so maybe it was the clothed version, who knows? M, is it M rating there? Yeah, Australia, Australia was still quite sensorial at that point. Um, and, it, and of course, it was released in the US. Again, some point in the 1970s, we don't really know. I hadn't been able to when. nail that down. I did try and research it, but I know it, I found out it was released by a company called Peppercorn Dash Wormser. Peppercorn Wormser. Sounds like a medical treatment. I know, but they they specialised in a lot of European art house and trash from mm. the you know the 60s and 70s. They they had. Sometimes, like, you know, with Roger Corman, who would also release art house movies as yes. well, they, yeah. they realised there was a, a certain crowd that they could touch that the majors would never think of. You know. And I think especially at that point that European art house, obviously, for a large part of the audience, meant sexy. Yeah, because so. they had done from, from the 50s onwards sometimes yeah. in the States, hadn't it? You know, sometimes they would they would import, you know, ooh-la-la uh, mm productions that had that little bit more even yeah. if it was just back to those days of stockings and suspenders yeah, well, than yeah the, the yeah. classic thing of selling a really dour grim Ingmar Bergman film as being a sexy romp yeah. because there was one scene of nudity exactly yeah but then it might pack an art house cr- cr- yeah, crowd because, in you know and they'd probably be quite happy with that one scene of nudity it wasn't much I think Sunrise label in Holland which is one of the biggest distributors of, 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 of 
trashy sort of. Yeah, I think those of us, certainly those of us in the UK who used to import films during the heyday of the the VHS um, and the BBFC, probably saw a lot of Sunrise films in one way or another. Yeah, all those 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 logos would pop up all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whenever I went over to Amsterdam, if you saw a Sunrise film, it was always worth picking up and buying. You might not always get it back into the country, but it was always worth picking up and buying. But and also, the Sunrise version was the one that seemed to be the source of all the bootlegs that floated around about of this film back when it was unavailable. Yeah, often that was the only way you could get hold of films like that in these days. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it has it has come out on on questionable. DVD releases in the past, I think. Mm. Um, Grey area, I think. Is what they grey area, I think, is, <laughs> is, is the nice way of describing it, yes. But this is the release to go for, obviously. And if you're already listening to us, you've already, you've already bought, bought it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we don't really need to sell it we to you, do we? are not giving a hard sell here. <laughs> we're, just, we're just noting. But what, what, all the great scenes that, um, that it has been leading up to have been happening also whilst we've been waffling on about its releases. And um, this is why the film does build up to quite Yeah, it's quite lively at the end. Mm. That was an interesting little freeze frame for a second as well. And, oh, he's, he's shocked. Look, shocked to see that the vampire is turning into dust. Well, he's never seen that before. Um, but then, uh, actually, after this, what is curious um, is that, you know, the film then carries on mm. uh, for another few minutes, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't... It doesn't, it doesn't finish this feels way. like the end point, doesn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. They say, they say au revoir or au vitesen to, uh, to the inspector here. And he's also pulling up in another Mercedes. And... Um, yeah, you would assume that the end credits would suddenly appear, but oddly enough, they don't, do they? And I, I couldn't figure out the reason for that. I thought what they were going to do um, was do one of these kind of, he would turn round and you know, smile at the camera, or she would turn round and, and have the fangs, or, yeah. you know, um, not that they've played much with fangs in the entire film. Uh, no. Fact, I don't think there are any fans in the I don't recall seeing any at any point, which is another weird thing, like we were discussing the fact that the uh, the neck wounds seem to be more like something that's caused by uh, suctions of, a, of, a, of an octopus or squid yeah. or something, rather than a vampire. Or at least something just being chewed out rather yeah. than, yeah. Just, than a bite. Uh, one thing's for sure, it's not a human being, it's an animal, as the coroner confirmed. But, or a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, it just, it, it carries on, and um, there is no twist. Uh, no, not spoiling it for anyone. They've obviously presumably watched the film before they've listened to us. Um, I mean, it's interesting that the inspector here is quite happy for them to all leave now, even though he's got no idea whatsoever has happened in the castle. <laughs> you know, he wasn't there to see the vampire. He doesn't go check or anything. No, no, no. no. I think, I think. <laughs> That was something I, I pondered as well. It's just like, yeah, right, okay, bye-bye. I'll take your word for it. You killed the vampire, off you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but, you know, case closed. I think it was a busy time for crime in those days. Let's just, let's just close. Who's to say police officers wouldn't you, do that now? Did you actually say when you, when you were discussing the true-life case earlier on that they never called? The, the they never killer? did. 
I don't think he was the killer. That, you no. know, he could he could technically still be alive and out there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so here we have BP. Yeah, I I noted that there's a BP garage, and across the road there's a Shell garage. I don't know why I noted that, but um, I, I kind of just thought it was curious, global domination. Curious in Germany that uh, it was two British-based companies rather than a German. What were the German saying, companies? Yeah, the international age? global. But this does seem like a weird, a weird, pointless padding end because, it, as you say, it doesn't go anywhere, and you wonder why they felt the need to do this because it feels like it's building to something yeah. that never happens. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I was I was bemused by this and uh, could not work it out. But still, it is what it it's is. An, it's another bizarre moment in a very bizarre film. Perhaps my only thought was. Some distributors said the film has to be a certain length. It's too and, short. Yeah, and so, but this would be the only scene I'd have said would sit that this bit, maybe not, because often a couple will discuss what's gone on at the end of a movie yeah. and say, well, that was our romantic time in Stuttgart. Um, let's look forward to better times. But and the, the bit of the petrol have... station really did seem like padding, like the bit of the airport earlier on. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, I don't think the film does have much padding at all, really. No. Not like some films uh, where, where you really do feel, I mean, oh, God, Eagle-eyed viewers minutes. should watch out for one more little twist here, though. Entirely accidental, we're, we're certain. But if you just watch the screen... You were very eagle-eyed spotting this, David. Very carefully. I've to be fair, it. I didn't spot this. It was Pete Toombs from Mondo Macabre who pointed this out to me. I, I've looked at what? it at least three times, and it's ah, there yeah, it is. It is yeah. A hand mm. reaching out to the back of the seat, and then which is back quickly because... the cameraman steadying himself as they drive along. Or do you think that was meant to be the twist, and they really mishandled it? Somebody's in the back of the car. Yeah, who maybe knows? It was. I don't know. But anyway, anyway, it's been fun. I yeah, I, um, I I've enjoyed watching this again. <laughs> I was always watch these kind of films with the. Uh, um, you know, a, a certain light-hearted, uh, a, a jovial atmosphere has to, has to, you know, you can't, of course. you can't, you can't take it too seriously. Just an appreciation for what it is, and I think yeah, yeah. that includes being able to see the humour in it as well. Yeah, yeah. But so, this one, this one particularly interesting because of the true life uh, yeah. basis of, of, of the stars' involvement. But anyway, uh, as I've read you in it, it's been a joy. Yeah. <laughs> I've been Adrian Smith, and uh, um, I, hope, I hope you've enjoyed uh, And I still am David Flint, so yeah. hopefully we'll speak we'll to you maybe, again soon. Yeah, we'll maybe see you, uh, well, not see you, enjoy another of our waffly Blu-ray commentaries. Well, that was a suitably waffly ending, so... Thank you. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>